There we go. Thank you. It's great to have you guys here tonight. Um, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you're excited. Uh, I want to begin tonight with a very strange question. I'll probably never open like this again ever, but this is your opportunity to enjoy it. Um, when you were a kid, or maybe last week for some of you, a few choice uh, of you, uh, did you ever uh, take a, a microscope or a, like a little magnifying glass and use the sun as like a, la a laser beam of death? Did you ever do that as a kid? Like where you, you know, like the sun, the sun comes down and all of a sudden this little microscope becomes like a grenade launcher on ants. Have you ever done that before? Like, and and uh, I know some of you are like, yeah, actually I was trying that today and I, I like, couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. You need sun. Your, uh, your cell phone flashlight won't cut it, okay? Like you need the powerful piece of the sun. It's so interesting to me uh, how young boys especially uh, work, are working out like this aggressive piece of them. So um, is this going to, can I, are we good? Cool. Um, well, for me, one of the big questions as I ponder um, that image is, uh, have you ever felt like that's, that's what God is doing with you? In other words, has there ever been a time in your life where you felt like God was holding the sun in one hand, a magnifying glass on the other, and you just felt like he was just like following you around? Uh, maybe you articulated this way, I just feel like God's out to get me. I just feel like everywhere I turn, like all of my life circumstances and experiences, they just keep coming up short. I feel like God is after me. Have you ever articulated that before? Maybe not you. Maybe it was a friend that you heard. It was like all of these things were stacking up against them. The pain, regret, remorse, death, structure of life was just falling apart. And your friends would say things like, I, I just, I don't understand why God would ever do this. And the image, of course, in those moments is that God is, is holding the sun, right? And he's just like following us around. It's interesting how much that relates to our conversation last week on forgiveness. My contention to you last week was that forgiveness is a word that we use often in the English language, but that I, and I would imagine many of you don't have any idea what that really means. That forgiveness is like some concept, some word that we're taught to say both relationally and with God, but really the depth, the weight of what that word is, we're disconnected from. I want to share with you a, a realization that I came to walking away from last Wednesday. What I shared with you guys last week was that God in no way, shape, or form ever says to our sin that it's all right. That what we do in our human projection often with God is we put our emotions our understanding on God. And because sometimes inter interpersonally, we'll say things like when people come to us and say, hey, it, like, you, wrong, you, wrong, you wronged me, you sinned against me, and then we'll say, hey, it's cool. Like, don't worry about it, right? Like, that's what we'll say. And so then we think in our humanness that because we say that, that that's what God says. Problem is, God never says to our sin, it's all right. As has already been prayed by Kevin, if it was all right, then his son's sacrifice would have been diminished, but it wasn't. It was costly, right? So true forgiveness is I've been wrestling with it interpersonally, and I've been thinking about the people in my life, through my life, that have wronged me. True forgiveness isn't this cultural understanding of forgetting, forgiving and forgetting. Like, have, 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 have you guys ever seen that in the scripture, forgive and forget? Is that a Bible verse? No. There are all these things that we've learned in culture and then placed on the Bible and said, oh, well, that must be in the Bible. It's, it's not. Sometimes forgiving is remembering. 
So then what is true forgiveness? Well, I think interpersonally, it's getting to this place in my heart, no matter what the person has ever communicated to me, where I have come to this place in my heart where I forgive them and I wish them well. For me, that's one of the greatest indicators that I've come to this place where that person is truly forgiven. Where I'm not, in my mind, hoping that God would take the sun and a magnifying glass and smite them for the rest of their life because of what they did to me, right? And so then I was wrestling, well, what is true forgiveness then from the perspective of God? Uh, The word, the Greek word that we talked about, um, it means like carrying and lifting the burdens off. But isn't it the exact same thing in that perspective? Is that God in forgiving and wiping clean and pure and carrying the burden also wishes his children well. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Like forgiveness from God's perspective isn't, all right, like I forgave you and so now I'm going to hold it over your head the rest of your life, right? Don't you remember that I forgave you? Come on, you punks. Like, Remember all that stuff that you did back then? I took care of that, right? Like, you owe me all of this. God doesn't hang it over our head. If it's gone, it's gone. And now some of the classic Bible verses that we often misuse become appropriate, like Romans 8, 28. Look at this. This is on most bumper stickers and is misused all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The heart of God in forgiving His children is wishing them well. But not from your perspective, from His perspective. In other words, what you think is well for you is probably most often completely different from the perspective of God, if you're with me. And so now all these Bible verses, these classics like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you hope, like plans to give you a future. Now all of a sudden we get the picture of forgiveness. It's not God saying, it's all right, and now for the rest of your existence, I'm going to hold it over your head, all the wrong things that you've done. It's God, through his son Jesus, wiping clean and wishing his children well. And that, my friends, is worthy of a huge amount of gratitude. Are you with me? And so it's with that heart tonight, thanking God for what he's done, for the true forgiveness that is ours in Christ, that I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We've been in Hebrews uh, for many months and uh, we'll be in it for many more. It's been a blast, uh, at least for me. Didn't hear any um, amens on that. At least for me, it's been awesome. Uh, transforming, uh, certainly perspective changing. Tonight's passage, uh, I just want to forewarn you, it's, it's got such potential to transform heart and mind both that I'm really anxious to dig in tonight. So Hebrews chapter 9, I want to read the verse that we ended on last week in verse 22. We'll go all the way to chapter 10. That's right, we're done with nine chapters after tonight, a miracle of God, right? Verse 22, here we go, Hebrews 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that's where this whole concept of forgiveness that last week we taught on came from. With Christ, there is forgiveness. Without Christ shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verse 23, here we go for tonight. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and just as as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins for many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. So let's put up verse 23 and let's rock and roll here, verse by verse. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Well, uh, let's deal with the word copy. Uh, The Greek word is better uh, an example, a, a representation. And in this case, what he's been teaching for the previous chapters is there are some things in the old covenant, the old understanding, both in how sacrifice works and also how we are to worship and the place we are to worship. You remember the tent. That these things somehow are copies. The animal sacrifice and the place of worship for what is to come. Now, um, how many of you guys have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Any of you guys? Uh, it's a really interesting place to go, right? Unfortunately, I went with my family on a vacation uh, many years ago, and, and honestly, like, I don't know, like, as a kid, it's just not the vacation you dreamed of, like, when you're 10, 11, you know, and your parents say, all right, kids, like, we're really excited, this year we're going to Washington, D.C., and you're like, are you serious? Like, you know, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to be not American, but, uh, and, and to top it all off, it was literally, like, while we were there, it was like 120, and you're walking a lot, I just remember being angry, like, the whole time, like, I was like, I don't, I don't unless the Lincoln Memorial, like, unless Abraham Lincoln's shooting out ice out of his mouth, like, I don't want to have anything to do with it, like, I'm sweating, I can't take three showers a day like I normally do, anyway, uh, some of you are like, seriously, yes, um, one of the, one of the amazing things about Washington, D.C., though, is that it holds, in the archives there, the Declaration of Independence, right, well-timed on the slide, thank you, now, um, like, this is it, And I've been thinking a lot about verse 23 and how I can best describe it to you. And I want you to hear this. All over Washington, D.C., you can buy a copy of this for for like five bucks, right? Like it's it's on, and and they even like try to like make the parchment like, you know, a little bit ragged. And, you know, they like bend it up a couple times just to make it feel more authentic. But then you go into the the archives, and if you've seen National Treasure, you understand all of this philosophy. Um... (laughs) You go into the archives, right, and it's, and it's this, like, case, and it's all shining down. And, like, like, you know, like I do, like, if I buy that $5 Declaration of Independence, like, there's a good chance it's going to wind up in between my minivan seats. In the, you know, is that the place of junk, like, like it is? for Like, that thing, it, like, eventually the pile is all the way up to my roof in my van, right? Like, when I go to the car wash sometimes, I'm just, like, chucking stuff out in between those seats. And, and that's, where it would, that's where it would wind up, like a $5, like, this is... Worthless, but what if someone came to you and they said, uh, hey, uh, here's the actual Declaration of Independence, and, and I want you to have it, right? And, and they just they hand it over to you. Like you just purchased the $5 thing back here, but, but then all of a sudden they give you the real thing, 
this precious national icon, uh, you'd have to agree with me that you would take great care of it, wouldn't you? Like the perspective of the $5 fake copy all of a sudden becomes minuscule to what is real and significant. What the writer is saying and what he's challenging these readers is you are placing more value in the $5 old, worthless now, than you are this precious, authentic, real person of Christ. You've taken the fake, the copy, the example, and you've escalated that because you're not willing to let it go. Though the value of the real thing is incredibly different. Uh, here's what I would say about copies. It's for us and how it relates to our existence. Is that there's this, there's, there's this piece of us, right, where we, where we do the exact same thing. Where we take copies of the real thing and we escalate it. But I want to add a little twist to it. And I think this relates most to us. What if at the original signing of the Declaration of Independence, all of the signers were like, look, 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 here's the deal. This is so precious of a document. And there were a few of them uh, that, that they signed. They're like, we're going to sign five million of them, right? So we're going to write this thing out. Sorry for those of you that are going to have to scribe this. But we're going to sign five million of them so that we have this precious document and everyone can have it. If you have one of those five million versus just having the one, wouldn't you agree with me that in your mind the value goes down? Because there's five million other people that have the same document that you have versus just having the one. I feel like in our experience of Christ, we diminish the authentic value of Jesus because we see how many others are experiencing it. It's like deep in our soul, we want it to just be ours. We want the value of it to go up. We know that there's copies but we want the authentic thing just for us in our mind. And so what do we do? We take it for granted. We take advantage of it. We diminish the value of the real thing because it looks like everyone else can experience it too or at least has the semblance of. What he's challenging his readers here is, listen, the copy, it filled its purpose for a specific point in time. But now you have this precious thing. Put up verse 23 again for me. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. It was necessary for animal sacrifice to happen, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Jesus has come with a better sacrifice, with an authentic sacrifice, with something that's going to take care of it all. And then he says this amazing thing in verse 24. Look at this. For Christ has entered. Look at this. Not in the holy places made with hands, And you remember, if you've been joining us, that, that uh, God had uh, instructed Moses and many others and the Israelites how to construct this tent or tabernacle of meeting. Jesus doesn't enter in places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, examples, representations, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the what? The presence of God on our behalf. Okay. Let's say I gave all of you a piece of paper and a pen because I was so kind. And I said, uh, here, here's the thing. We're going to have a little bit of an essay, uh, but it's, it's all opinion. So good chance you'll do well if you fill anything out. 
Um, those are my favorite kind of essays. And I just said this. I said, tell me what you think the presence of God is. Like that was what you wrote on the top. What is the presence of God? What would you write? So incredibly interesting. Like many of you are like, many of us and most of us, right, we would jump right to experiences. Agree? Like we've had maybe these experiences in your past where you've said, I just really, what, feel the presence of God, right? That's come out of your mouth. Like I just, I sense the presence of God. Um, when I was younger, I was in this a youth choir called Impact, creatively entitled. And um, though uh, my wife says I can't sing, um, I enjoy singing. Any, any of the rest of you guys, like you enjoy singing, but you know that you're not the best singer. Okay, a few of us. Uh, I went on to use that gift, and I was the lead singer of a band called Blitz for a few years, um, taking, taking my gift of not singing on the road. Um, it was really encouraging. And then, uh, actually, some good friends here tonight, I led a worship, actually, for another four years, again, taking that gift of not singing. Anyway, we, had, uh, we, go on, we will go on choir tours with this choir. Have you guys ever been on a choir tour, right? It's, okay, there's three of us. And... Uh, and so we would go on these choir tours, and, and it was always really exciting, like we fundraised all year to go on it. And this one particular tour, it, I was a junior in high school, and we were really excited, and then we found out that one of the churches that we were going to be going to, that um, there was literally like 45 members in the church, and, and there was a good chance that like six of them were going to show up, and one of them like would be my mom, you know, like, it, like no one was going to be there. And so, like automatically, I'm instantly just depressed. I'm like, Seriously? Like, we've raised all this money, and then we're going to go, like, sing for a few, like, pets here. You know what I mean? Like, there are some people are going to bring their dogs, and, like, this is going to be ridiculous. And so we're backstage. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And the amazing thing about talking about the presence of God is it's hard even at times to describe it, isn't it? We walk out in our nice, like, navy blue shirts, right? And we start singing. And literally, there were probably, like, we, we quadrupled the amount of people in the crowd. But something happened in that room. And I can't, like, I, I can't even now describe it to you. Like, if it, were, if it were my essay, like, it would just be scribbles. Because words can't even say. But what I do know for sure is that is that, that was, the, was like a, a picture, a glimpse of the presence of God, right? I can't even put it into words exactly. But at one point, like halfway through this thing, I'm like looking around at my friends and we're all just weeping, right? And all the people there, all six of them, are on their face and they're weeping and no one knows what's going on, but it's awesome, right? Like we're experiencing the presence of God. I feel like for most of us in answering that question, what is the presence of God, we would, we would turn exactly to examples, experiences in our life. That's an okay route to go but my friends, our experiences must match up with the scripture. Are you with me? And so I feel like we need a little work here to understand what's happening in the scripture on what the presence of God is. Are we together? I want to make three statements that we see here in, in verse 24 and one outside of verse 24 that we can better understand what he's talking about. All right? So let's start here with Exodus 33. Put this up for me. Now, this is one of the most famous. If you're in our small group a network on Lot Families on Sunday, we studied this about a month and a half ago or so. Look at this. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you by name. Again, this is a conversation between Moses and God. I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider to this nation, the nation of Israel. These are your people, he says, verse 14. And he said, this is God, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God speaks about his presence. And to Moses here, he says, like, my presence is going to, it's going to go with you somehow. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So God says, my presence is going with you. Moses says, that's good. Because if it's not going, like, leave us here. Your presence has to go with us. Keep going. Verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I your people? It is not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said, verse 17 to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now this is an amazing moment in scripture. Uh, A, because Moses and God are speaking, right? Like this is powerful. And God's talking about his presence and how it's going to go with him. And then Moses just pleads, Like, show me your glory, right? So look what happens here. Amazing. Verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness (laughs) pass. Don't you love what he calls it there? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, what? You cannot see my face. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live, he says. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Isn't this amazing? One of the best texts in the whole Old Testament. I love this, just because the word cleft is in it. Verse 23, right? (laughs) Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my what? You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In understanding God's presence, let's make this statement, all right? Next slide. Three facts about God's presence. The first is, the presence of God cannot be approached by man alone. Cannot. After the fall, especially, we see that God cannot be approached by man in and of himself. So his presence isn't enterable by man. So how is it? We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. God shows... What is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast, what? In the presence of God, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Next statement about uh, the presence of God. Jesus enters, as we see in verse 24, into the presence of God on what? On our behalf. So no man may boast. Now, think about this statement for a second. Some of your greatest moments with the Lord. Think about this, please. Some of your greatest moments with the Lord. There's one side of you, like I was just describing, that longs to tell everyone in humility because of what God did. Then there's another side of you because of how unique it was, because of what you saw happen, because of the amount of people whose hearts were opened, 
that starts to open up in pride because of your experience in the presence of God. Are you with me? And what he's saying here is that Jesus has gone in on whose behalf? On our behalf. Love and grace so that man may not boast. So through Christ, man gets to experience the presence of God. Only through Christ. Man cannot approach God's presence alone, but now through Jesus, my friends, we have this ridiculously amazing access to the presence of God, which is great, isn't it? God says himself, my goodness is going to pass in front of you, right? So a third uh, slide here, Psalm 51. Now, David prays this after he commits adultery. Look what he says. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Interesting phrasing. The third point I'll make is this. In Christ, man cannot be cast from God's presence. What David prayed, I still feel is a great prayer, a plead, God, keep me close. God, God, please remember. God, remember that I'm your child. But it's not a prayer, listen, of necessity. In Christ, as a believer, you cannot be cast from his presence. All of the theology and the doctrine that we've been building, all of Hebrews, has been not once saved, always saved, but if saved, always saved is that if you're called a child of God, adopted by Him, He doesn't then kick you out of His family. Once you're His child, you're His child. You can't break a covenant you didn't start, right? And so this prayer that David pleads, cast me not from your presence, it in Christ won't be your reality ever. If you're in Christ, my friends, then you have the blessed, awesome chance to experience the presence of God. Now, uh, you're like, okay, that's nice. What does that mean? Let me tell you. My wife, uh, who's amazing, I love her, incredible woman, she, um, she struggles falling asleep without me in the house. Any of you other women want to admit to that? You're just like, I just can't. Okay, so a few of you. Heidi, there's at least three or four others, so you're not alone there, babe. But it's kind of sweet, right? You know, and, and Heidi and I, we, we strive to go to bed together. Like, we, we love to go to bed together. We, I, you know, we try not to watch TV, one of us, and try as many times as we can to go to bed together. But it's sweet because she's like, hey, you know, make sure, that, make sure that you come in our room when you get home because I'm going to be waiting for you um, to get in the house. So there's something about my presence in the house that she's dependent on. See what I'm saying? And when I'm not there, when she can't, like, you know, have that weird sense that, her protector, which let's be clear, I'm a pretty great protector. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's just be clear about that. Hallelujah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. If, if I'm not there, I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. Not really, though. Uh-huh. If I'm not there, like she, she knows it, she feels it, right? We will never have that in Christ experience with God. Like, we never have to wonder, is he, is he in the house or not? Like, in, if we're grafted in Christ, Christ is in the presence of God. Do you understand that? Jesus is in right now as our intercessor. 
He's in the very presence of God, making intercession on our behalf. He sympathizes with us. He's there. If we're in Christ, my friends, then that is ours. And so it's more than just a great feeling or a great experience. In Christ, God's presence is ours, my friend. And so I know sometimes you're like, well, I just don't know if I feel Him. I just, I can't, I feel so distant of Him. Rest in Jesus because He's there, right? And as our intercessor, my friends, that's beautiful. So put up verse 24 for one more second. I just want to show you this. Verse 24. Back to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. That's where he is. Now to appear in the presence of God face to face. Verse 25 says this. Nor was it, and this is so rich, please see this. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would, have to have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, when you're studying the scripture, it's great just to stop and look at it for a while. Seriously. One of the things that I always do in my studies, I just like look at it over and over and over. What, what do you see in these two verses? There's something so crystal clear about these two verses. I mean, it's just like, it's blinding. And after a few minutes, like, you just can't get away from it. He is, in these two verses, and in the couple verses to come, he is obsessed with time. Look at this. Repeatedly, repeatedly, every year, since the foundation of the world, the end of the ages. Like, in these two verses alone, we have just a ton of understanding of time. But why? Next slide. I have a picture. This is nice. Um, here's what he's saying was the reality for the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the high priestly order. Every year, the Day of Atonement, they would have to make sacrifice. Every year. It came every single year without fail. The calendar. And so after the Day of Atonement, all 363, 4, 5 days, they're waiting again for the Day of Atonement. And your atonement, your forgiveness, is hinging on this process. And it's repeated every year, year after year after year. Can I ask you a question? If this was your reality, how could you ever take off the blinders and see life from a not temporal perspective? Your entire life is temporal. I mean, you're year to year. There's no way you could ever see beyond it. Why? Because your sins, your transgressions are all waiting for that day of atonement to come again. And when it comes, there's some semblance of peace. But then what happens on day one after it? Repeated over and over. Sacrifice. It kept happening. What he's saying is this. Next slide. Is a, how ludicrous would it be if that was Jesus? Like he says it would, have happened, it would have had to happen from the foundation of the world. Like the moment Adam and Eve fall, like that repeated sin, uh, the repeated sacrifice of Jesus would have just had to keep going over and over and over. He's saying it's, that's absolutely ludicrous. Like what Jesus does is he comes after year after year after year sacrifice and his, sacri- his one sacrifice 
wipes it all clean. No need for repetition. Otherwise, Jesus would have had to die, raise again, die, raise again, die, raise again. And I think you would agree with me at that point. All of us are stepping back from this concept of Christianity and saying like, no way. But what happens if it's once for all? What happens if one sacrifice wipes it completely clean? And now the implications of this, listen, the implications of this are so deep and so unbelievable. We're going to get to see the, the puzzle pieces come together here in the next two verses. Why is he so obsessed with time? I want to show you. Put back up uh, my last verses. Just for one, one more second. Verse 26. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but he doesn't. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. Next uh, verse, 27. But just, as it, but just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, dot, dot, dot. <clears throat> I don't want to be morbid uh, at all, and I don't want to take this conversation lightly, but I need you to understand what he's saying here in verse 27. How, how often do you think about your death? I know, I, I know it's kind of a strange question. But how often do you think, how often does it enter your mind? It's kind of one of those weird things, right? Like when you start talking about it, like everyone kind of like gets a little. I'll guarantee you this. If you've ever had the death of a family member or friend and you've been to the funeral, death does something instantly as it puts life in perspective. Instantly. Death always puts life into perspective. I've had many family members die. As a pastor, I've preached many a funeral. Uh, a girl here, a woman in our church, just had her uh, grandfather passed away a few days ago and was at the funeral last week. Doesn't matter if I've never met the guy, which I hadn't. Sitting in that room puts life in perspective. Agree? So what is he saying here? He's saying that, that every man will die and then after that death comes judgment. God, brilliantly as God does, says this verse, writes this verse, communicates this truth to do just what I just said. He brings all focus and all perspective in so that he can say what he says in verse 28. Because he knows any time humans are faced with the concept of death and then at death judgment, this moment when all men will face whether or not they have been followers of Jesus. Right? Like, that's the moment. Are you His kid? Are you not? Are you His child? Are you not? Has Christ been your Savior or not? That's the moment. And He knows, like for every single person, that moment of truth in thinking about it instantly brings focus so that then He can say, verse 28, look at this, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on Him. Now let's just enjoy this verse for a moment, shall we? Christ is coming back. 
He came, he lived, he died, he rose. The disciples watched him ascend. I was just teaching my children that. And they were wrestling with the concept, how can Jesus fly? And Avery straight up said, when I go to heaven, will I fly too, right? Interesting question I have to answer. I went with, I'm not sure about that, right? Like, let's leave that, right? He ascends. And over and over and over, as he pointed to and as scripture alludes to, he's coming back. And my friends, listen, like, Sometimes the word, you just have to let it hit you. When he comes back, he is not coming back to deal with sin. Do you get this? Do you understand this? Can you celebrate this? Sin has done, been dealt with. He's not returning again to deal with the ramifications of sin. They were done with on the cross. And so if for a moment you can understand his pattern of writing, once for all sacrifice, what does that mean? It means sin is dealt with. There is no more need for any sacrifice, for any conversation to even happen with it. It is completely over with. But what is he going to do? He's going to come back and he's going to save those who are eagerly awaiting on him. That's what he's going to do. Now, as I sit back from this, puzzle pieces start coming together. Next slide. I've already told you what this does. This focus of Day of Atonement, year after year after year, what that does is it makes your entire existence temporal. You cannot look past the year to year. That's your perspective. You're completely and all the time looking this wall in the face of your reality. But the precious truth that we've seen tonight is that through Christ, once for all sacrifice, Now all of a sudden, this whole perspective changes. Now all of a sudden, I'm not waiting for the Day of Atonement. I'm what? I'm waiting on His what? On His return. So now all of a sudden, my perspective, because Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, is no longer temporal. Now my perspective has completely changed to eternal. Now I'm just waiting on Him to come back. And in the meantime, I know this, that I will die. Unless he comes back before. I will die. And so now all the puzzle pieces come together. And then we say, well, if, if we're going to die, then what should we do now? And what he says in verse 28 is you eagerly await his return. That's what you do. You eagerly await it. You're longing for him to come back. No longer temporal. Now everything's eternal. And in this moment in time, it begs the question, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? If I were to examine your life right now and we were to ask that question, what are you waiting for? Not your words, not your essay answer, but your life. What would it say that you're longing and waiting for? Would it say the person of Christ or would it say that you're waiting for your finances to finally get in check? That you're waiting for that person that you've tried so hard to get to love you In your mind, if they could just finally love me, then everything would be fine. You're waiting on your purpose to become clear. That's what drives every thought of yours. Maybe today, when I wake up, everything that I'm supposed to do in life will just be mapped out and written down on some whiteboard for me. That's what you're waiting on. For some of you, you're just longing for that, that finally that career, that job that presents itself that won't create all these problems any, anymore. Many of you are waiting to have a relationship with your parents. You've been waiting all your life, you feel like. Like maybe one day it'll seem like mom and dad really care. 
You're waiting for forgiveness. You're waiting for a, a relational restoration. There are all these things that we're waiting on. But the Scripture commands us over and over and over that we must eagerly await not on all of these things, but simply on the person of Christ. He's coming back. He will return. And because of that, I long for it. And not just getting out of hell free. And that's the difference. Are you waiting for the person of Jesus to come back because you believe he is so precious? Or are you just glad you're not going to hell because he forgives you? There's a story I'd like to share with you closing. The Bible says that um, he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus. The firstborn over all creation, Colossians. By him and through him, uh, through him everything has been made. And in John chapter 8, I, I just, can you guys just listen to this story, please? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? Many of you guys have heard this story before, but please, you need to see this anew. Woman's been caught. The old law says stone her. Jesus, what do you say? Verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Listen to this. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you picture this? Woman standing here, everyone's around. Jesus is bending down. They're wondering what's going on. He stands up and he says, any of you who are without sin, go ahead, Chuck. Throw the stone. And once more, he bent down and wrote to the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. There are certain moments in the Bible where all of a sudden it just becomes your story. There's certain moments in the text, right? Where you're reading and all of a sudden you feel like you're there, like that's you. The Christ is saying like, hey, certainly she's done a horrible thing here. Go ahead. If you're without sin, you stone her. And now it's just Jesus and her. And here's what he says. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you, he says. And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. That's what we're waiting on. That, my friends, is the picture of God. Saving grace. No condemnation. 
And so all of those things that you feel like are so important, and if those things would just figure themselves out, then all life would be better. No! Only Christ. Only Christ brings restoration. Only Christ brings goodness. Only Christ brings forgiveness. And only Christ can take away the temporal blinders and allow me to say, I desire to eagerly await on you. Not the benefits of you, but just you. I pray that in my heart, I just long for Jesus. That's it. Let me sit in your presence. That'll be enough. Last slide. We just have to wait for the right thing. And there's only one of those. And that's Jesus. So wait on everything else no more. And allow Christ to put your entire life in perspective. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the power of your sacrifice. I thank you, God, for the picture of grace and love. I thank you, Lord, that what you have done in saving us and redeeming us is so deep that we'll never even be able to fully fathom your love. And I thank you for that, God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that in my friends, that we will loose our grip on the temporal things of this world. And please give us the passion to eagerly wait on your return. Let's stand together and respond.